fourth chapter. Father, we pray this morning that the work that Jesus Christ did for us, as depicted by Boaz in this fourth chapter, would bring a heightened sense of rejoicing to each one of us. I pray, Lord, that familiarity would not breed contempt, that because we've heard it, that we would not have a been-there-done-that attitude when it comes to the greatest work ever performed, the work of redemption. I pray, Lord, that you'd shake some of us from complacency. Bring us back, Lord, to the basic, simple truth of your great love. That's what it's all about, to receive it and then to give it. In Jesus' name, amen. Superman, Batman, Indiana Jones, Power Rangers. What do they all have in common? They're heroes. They're superheroes, as kids call them today. I asked Nathan that last night, and he said right off the bat, they're heroes. And I said, well, are there any live heroes around? Are there any real ones? It's a good question. Are there any live, real heroes? There's a book written called The Day America Told the Truth written by two secular authors, Peter Kim is one of them, who wrote an article. And uh, James Patterson was the other. And they have a whole section, it intrigued me, on American heroes. They said after polling uh, the people that they polled in their poll, they concurred that most Americans do not believe there are any living heroes around today. That there's no real role models that we could hold up to our children and say, here, look at that person. That's a hero. There's a woman, a historian, the late Barbara Tuckman, on her 50th birthday was invited to take part in a conference on heroes. And she was celebrated at this conference. And after it was all over with, she wrote, It was quite weird what they considered to be a hero. The real hero of the discussion was the little girl who fell down a well. She didn't do anything to make herself a hero. She was just in the news. Other heroes were discussed. Elvis Presley. And somebody who I never heard of, the Mayflower Madam. Well, the author of the book I mentioned, The Day America Told the Truth, gave their reasons why they think there aren't any left. When they wrote... There are no heroes because we have ceased to believe in anything strongly enough to be impressed by its attainment. Well, in chapter 4 we come to a couple of heroes. I've entitled it, Two Mighty Men from Bethlehem. First is Boaz. He's mentioned in the story. He was the hero to a woman named Ruth. He was the Prince Charming who sort of got off his white horse and swept her off her feet, and they live happily ever after. Sort of. The second one is one that Boaz foreshadows. He's a type of. He's analogous to another one named Jesus Christ, also born in Bethlehem. Both of these men fit into the category of kinsman-redeemer. Heroes. One is the hero for a woman. One is the hero for the whole world, Jesus Christ. Both of them are a lot better than Elvis Presley. Um, 
I think that in this case, the best is saved for last. Chapter 4 is the best of all. It sort of ties a ribbon on all the truths we've gathered so far in the book of Ruth. Uh, there's many lessons we've learned. Lessons about relationship, uh, lessons about consequences of sin, lessons about providence. But the greatest lesson is the lesson in chapter 4, the lesson of redemption. Redemption, you might say, was the ultimate life experience for Ruth, this young foreign woman who's now in Bethlehem. It was it for her. This is what she dreamed of. This is what she looked forward to. The ultimate experience. What is your ultimate experience? I would hope that it's the redemption. It's interesting the response that Paul Clark got as he was singing a song this morning and talked about the goodness of God and it might not mean anything, but the response is, yeah, neat. And they said, come on, what's, what should our response be? And then we clapped. Jesus told his disciples, who had just gone on a little journey and came back, and they were so excited about an experience of being able to command demon spirits. Jesus said, let me tell you something. Don't rejoice. Just that demons are subject to your name. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The ultimate experience. A woman by the name of Fanny Crosby, she's now in heaven. She was born with eyesight, but several weeks after she was born, she became blind. She wrote 8,000 songs for the Christian church. 8,000 hymns. Many of them are still sung today. A minister came to her one time and he said, Madam, it is a pity that after all the gifts God has given you, He has not given you your sight. She said, let me tell you something. If at birth I had one request, it would be that I was born blind. He said, why would you request that? She said, because that would mean that the first face that would ever gladden my sight would be that of my Savior. She knew the difference between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. And she wrote so many songs about her ultimate experience, which was redemption. One of the songs, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. One of the stanzas of that song, I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of Him all the day long. I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. Does she sound bitter and bummed out in life? Does she go, why can't I see? She was excited because of the ultimate experience, redemption. Let's uh, glean this chapter then and look first of all at Boaz. Let's call him the man for the hour. He's exactly what Ruth needed. But then we'll look also at Jesus, whom Boaz foreshadows, the man for eternity. Uh, beginning in verse 1 and 2, we have sort of a courtroom scene, though it's a little bit different in ancient times. It says, Boaz went to the gate... And he sat down there. Now don't picture the gate as a little white picket fence opening and closing. The gates of the ancient cities were huge structures made out of stone. Behold, a close relative, actually the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother 
Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. Now, do you remember last week, Ruth comes to the threshing floor and she pops the question. She proposes to him in a very blatant way. She said, You're the kinsman. You're the relative. Redeem me. In other words, let's get hitched. Boaz said, I'd love to. I'm willing to. I do. However, there's a guy who's closer in a relation than I am to you, and he's got the first right of refusal. So you just sit tight. You don't worry about a thing. See what I can work out. Well, here he's working it out at the gate of the city. This is the ancient courtroom. It's the equivalent of the modern courtroom scene, except there's no TV cameras, there's no bloody glove, and so on. It's a very simple, out-in-the-open courtroom, presided over by the judges, or the elders, as they're called here, of the city. Now, the city gate was not just a hole in the wall, though the ancient cities were walled and protected, compacted together. The city was sort of a courtyard with benches around it. It was the opening and closing. Everybody did go through that gate to go out and to come back in the city every morning. Because of that, it was the place where news was conveyed. If you wanted to find out what's in the local paper, you go to the gate. They tell you what's happening. If you want a uh, business matter transacted, you go to the gate. If you want a legal thing to be presided over, you go to the gate of the city. It was at the gate of the city where Abraham purchased a plot of land for Sarah, his wife, back in Genesis. It was at the gate of the city where David uh, saw Absalom, his son, out schmoozing the people turning their hearts from David toward himself. It was at the gate of the city in the book of Kings where Jehoshaphat and Ahab sat and presided over the war-making affairs of the town. And so here Boaz presents his case before the elders. And it's the case of redeeming land and redeeming a woman. Let's talk about redemption for a minute. The word is used throughout the whole chapter. There are three terms that are used in the Hebrew Old Testament to speak of redemption. One of them is used here. Redeem means to buy something back or to buy someone back who's a slave. There's three words. One word is the word pada'ah, a Hebrew term. It means to redeem persons or other living beings. Example, let's say you had an ox. And the ox that you owned was rambunctious and aggressive and you knew about it, you were responsible to keep it penned up. If you did not, you let it run wild and that ox gored somebody and killed them, then the law stipulated that the ox would be stoned to death and so would you for letting it happen. If, however, you were careless and somebody was killed, you could redeem yourself and your ox by paying money if the other party, the survivors, accepted it. That would be the word pada. Another term that is used in the Old Testament is Kippur, where we get the term Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The Jews still celebrate it today. The idea is to cover. It's the day of covering. You are redeemed from your sins by a blood sacrifice and you are right with God. The third term is the term that is used here. It's the term Ga'al. And it means redemption of family members or land that belonged to the family. It was done by the next of kin, a relative, a kinsman, as it's called here, the kinsman redeemer. 
Now, the guy who was the closest related to you, who is mentioned here, unnamed, but mentioned here in the first couple of verses, he's got the right of first refusal. You tell him the deal, hey, there's some land that's up for sale, it belonged to the family members, but it's because of default gotten out of the family. If you've got the money and you want to do it, you can redeem it. If he didn't want to redeem it, then the next in line, in this case Boaz, could redeem the land. Now this was a double redemption. It was not only land, but a widow who had no son. That complicates matters a little bit. Uh, The land would be an attractive offer. The wife part could not be an attractive offer, especially if you already have one. Verse 3. He said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, if you will not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field... From the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. In other words, if you get the land, you get the check. All right? And she has no son. And you've got to provide a son according to the Old Testament law. And now notice the change. The close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Lest I ruin my own inheritance, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. Boaz said to the elders and the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Chilion's or Kilion's, depending on what part of the country you're from, and Malon from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Now you read this and you think, this is all strange. We don't do this today in a modern courtroom. What on earth are they talking about? Would you turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 25? We hinted at this in weeks past. Let's read what the law stipulated. Deuteronomy, the 25th chapter. Verse 5. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that the name may not be blotted out of Israel." But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go to the gate of 
uh, up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. The elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I don't want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, Creep? No. (laughs) So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And the name... His name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. That's an odd law. I'm glad we live in 1990s. I'm glad we don't live back then. I think that there would be some guys who would opt for the loogie in the eye rather than the woman. And there were some who did, obviously. The law said, if he refuses, you know, aim right in the face and then... Get a sandal. Now the idea of this was to perpetuate the family name. It sounds really odd, but in Israel, God gave them tribal allotments and family allotments, and it was perpetually given to them forever. And it was kept in the family. But if you had no sons to perpetuate the family name and have an inheritance and keep the name going, there would be problems. And so there was the stipulation, for the sake of the land that God gave His covenant people, that the brother who survived the dead man would take the widow and have a son through him. That was the idea here. Um, Back in the book of Ruth, notice how slick Boaz is with this whole law. He comes to the gate. He is interested in Ruth, but he does not even mention her at, at all at first. He says, well, there's this land... And it was in our family, belonged to Naomi, and of course Naomi married Elimelech, our brother, our relative, and they split, they went to Moab, and he's dead, and she's left. She had to sell the land because of her poverty. Now, it's not in the family anymore. We have a chance to redeem it. Do you want the land? He goes, yeah, I'll redeem it, I'll buy it. Now perhaps when the other man said, I'll buy it, the heart of Boaz sunk into his sandals. But he didn't give up. He had an ace that he pulled out. He didn't mention Ruth yet. He says, well, there is one hurdle we have to cross. Not only is there land tied to this deal, but there's a woman tied to this deal. A foreign woman. A Moab woman. And he emphasizes that in the text. A Moabitess. Now this threw the guy back a little bit. Why? Well, first probably he was already married. He had his own land and his own inheritance. His kids would get the inheritance. If he marries a woman and ties all this land together, his own inheritance would be marred, not to mention what will happen. What will his wife say when he comes home? And so it's complicated. He's not willing to do it. But he mentions it's a Moabite woman. The reason that threw him back is because of the law in Deuteronomy which says, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. This is because of their response to God earlier on in their history. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So this guy said, I don't want another wife, even though there's land, especially a foreign woman. What this would do, what people would say. And it seems like this guy is already married because he says it will ruin his own inheritance. 
You know, I'm glad we live in modern days. People go, oh, I'd love to live in the times of the Bible. I even have guys, not often, but every now and then, believe it or not, who have said, you ever thought that it would be neat to live in the Old Testament? I'm thinking, no. Why? Well, you know, they, a lot of them had more than one wife. They had several wives. Well, wouldn't that be neat? I say, no. One is enough. I love my wife dearly. And she loves me. But let's be realistic. Read the accounts of the men who had several wives and see if their home was all bliss. This guy says, no, I've got enough sense. I'm not going to mar my own inheritance. I've got something good. Boaz, on the other hand, is unmarried. Not only is he unmarried, but he's an older man. It seems. In chapter 3, when Ruth comes and says, Hey, let's get together. You're my relative. He says, You could have gone after younger men, but you didn't. You've waited. And Boaz has waited. Seems like he's an older guy. He hadn't been married yet. Now he's ready to settle down, have a wife, have kids, have this inheritance. He doesn't care if she's from Moab. He's ready to settle down. He's waited for the right one. I found an interesting article I wanted to share with you along those lines. In USA Today newspaper, the weekend edition, it was about Warren Beatty, the movie star. Warren Beatty, now a dad of two, is talking family. This former liberal Democrat and ladies' man tells the new USA weekend that Dan Quayle was right about the family unit. He also refers to, listen to this, the excitement of monogamy. Doesn't sound like Warren Beatty. The excitement of monogamy. Well, he's right. Boaz understood that. Concerning the wild 60s, he says, it was an amazing opportunity for a generation of people to see that this kind of freedom is certainly not the answer to happiness. And after having a couple kids, he realizes the importance of the family, the importance of waiting for the right person, the excitement of monogamy. Ruth and Boaz believed in that. Now let's turn our focus over onto Jesus Christ for a minute. Uh, he's not mentioned here, except he's mentioned uh, sort of in the genealogy. We have toward the end of the chapter, verse 17 on, we get the family of King David, and Jesus is a descendant of David. Jesus is born in Bethlehem because Boaz was born in Bethlehem, and this took place in Bethlehem, making it the city of King David. Boaz, a mighty man of Bethlehem, but let's look in type to Jesus, another mighty man of Bethlehem. Have you ever seen a person, met a person? As soon as you meet him, you think, you know, he reminds me of so-and-so. That person sort of looks like that or acts like that. From a New Testament perspective, when we read Boaz, we say, you know, he reminds me of Jesus, in a sense, by his actions and by his attitude toward Ruth. Um, The New Testament gives a beautiful analogy of the relationship God wants to have with you, the church. It's a relationship of the bride of Christ. You are called as the church, and I am to all of us, the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. It is one of the most tender analogies of relationship that there is. God is saying, I want intimacy. I want warmth. I want closeness. There's a lot of people today who are content with a distant relationship with God. Hey, you keep your space, I'll keep mine, all right? 
And they talk about God as the higher power or the unnamed force. There are even Christians who, rather than the Jesus close friend relationship, is sort of like, well, the good Lord, kind of pushing him off at a distance. When God wants to bring you close as the bride and bridegroom, and there is no closer relationship of human beings as intended by God than a marriage relationship. Let's look at Jesus as the kinsman redeemer. First of all, Jesus qualifies as our kinsman redeemer like Boaz did. There were three stipulations. Number one, you had to be related. Number two, you had to be willing. Number three, you had to be able. We notice that Boaz was related. This is what perks the ears up of Naomi and Ruth. Chapter 2, verse 1, he is introduced as a man who is a close relative. Naomi mentions it again to Ruth in chapter 2, verse 20. He is related to us. It's based upon the relationship that Ruth comes in chapter 3, verse 9. And it says, As Boaz said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Hey, this can work because there's a blood relation. Well, in like manner, Jesus is related to us in that God became flesh, took upon Himself our humanity. In the beginning was the Word, John said. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. The writer of Hebrews, talking about redemption this way, said, Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those or redeem those who all their lives have been held in slavery by their fear of death. Paul in Philippians says Jesus was equal with God. He was God, but he poured himself out, took upon himself the form of a servant, being found in the nature of man, went and paid the price for our redemption, the cross. So here you have God who steps out of eternity through all the constellations into the Milky Way galaxy, into a speck of dust called the earth, into the womb of a peasant woman in Bethlehem to be born as a person, to relate to us in our humanity. Spurgeon, commenting on this grace, said, How great a stoop from the height of his throne to a dunghill. This is the first qualification. That is why, folks, the virgin birth is not a negotiable. Oh, well, if you don't believe Jesus is virgin born, who cares? It's a big deal. Because it means you have to have the virgin birth for God to become man. And if God is just God, if Jesus was just divine but not fully human, he can't redeem us. He's not related by blood. The kinsman redeemer must be like those that he redeems. There must be a blood relationship. And Jesus is a near kinsman. Jesus came into real life as a real baby with real cries and all of the real problems all of us have. Sometimes we picture Jesus as, oh, he must have been a perfect baby. He probably never cried. Never had to change him. I mean, he had a halo. All the pictures show him with that little halo on. Oh, he was sinless. He was perfect. But he had the real problems, the real temptations, the real struggles, the real suffering, and the real death. And while he was on the earth, not only was he a real human being, but he made himself real. He was relatable to people. 
They understood him. One author commenting on Jesus said, Jesus, in the Gospels, it's the most common name used almost 600 times. And a common name it was. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, Jeshua, and Jehoshua, all familiar Old Testament names. There were at least five high priests known as Jesus. The writings of the historian Josephus refer to 20 people called Jesus. The New Testament speaks of Jesus Justice, the friend of Paul. And the sorcerer of Paphos is called Bar-Jesus. Some manuscripts give Jesus as the first name of Barnabas in the book of Acts. What's the point? Jesus could have been a Joe. If Jesus came today, his name might have been John or Bob or Jim. Were he here today, it is doubtful that he would distance himself with a lofty name like Reverend Holiness Angelic Divinity III. No, when God chose a name that his son would carry, he chose a human name. He chose a name so typical that it would have appeared two or three times on any given class role. Jesus, God in human flesh relating to you, to be your relatable hero. He knows you better than you know you. When you cry out and say, I'm hurting, he can say, I know what it feels like. God became a man. He knows you better than your friends, better than your spouse knows you. He's a kinsman. Second qualification, he has to be able to pay the price. Look over at chapter 2, verse 1. How uh, Boaz, the kinsman, is introduced. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth. Why is that mentioned? It's mentioned because he's not only related, he's got the bucks to buy the land and get the gal. A kinsman could say, you know, I am related to you. So, it costs this much to redeem the land. Well, um, I'll give you an IOU. You had to have the wherewithal to make the purchase. And Boaz was a wealthy man, not only a kinsman. I'm sure that Naomi and Ruth had poor relatives in Bethlehem. They had a lot of people who knew them and were related to them. And perhaps in the evening when Naomi came back, the poor relatives would gather together, hearing of their loss, weeping with them, hugging them. Oh, we love you. Oh, we're so sorry for you. Oh, I wish we could help you. But we can't. We don't have any money. We're poor like you are. Well, that's fine and wonderful and nice, but... At this point, Naomi and Ruth needed somebody who could write a check without having it bounce. And that man was Boaz. Not only was he related, he was able to do it. In the same way, Jesus Christ is not only related, becoming man, but he was fully God so that he could pay the needed price for redemption. Let me give you a few scriptures. Ephesians 1, 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 speaks of the riches of His goodness. Romans 9, 23, the riches of His glory. And then in Ephesians 3, speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you remember when Jesus was hanging on that cross? One of the last things He said, He said, Father, it is finished. And then he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. The word it is finished is a Greek term, tetelestai, which means it's finished, but it can also mean paid in full. It was a term used in the market. You buy some goods, you say, tetelestai, it's paid in full. 
Father, to Telestai, it's paid in full. I was able to make the redemption transaction. And we were redeemed back to the Father. So, it was needful that Jesus Christ be fully man, so that he could take our place. But it was also necessary that he be fully God, so that he could come up with the needed price, the wherewithal, to buy us back to the Father. That's why it's important that we realize Jesus was not a good man, he was the God-man. Fully God and fully man. Thirdly, he must be willing to do it. You could have a relative. You could have a relative with bucks. But what if he said, I don't want to do it? One did in chapter 4. He said, I don't want to do it. You have to be willing. The first guy wasn't willing. But Boaz said, I am willing because he loved Ruth so much. And so too, Jesus Christ was willing to buy us back to the Father to redeem us. It was a voluntary death. He wasn't forced into it. In the garden, he prayed, Hey, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. He wasn't murdered on the cross. Nails didn't keep him on the cross. His love did, voluntarily. He said, I lay my life down of myself. John chapter 10. No man takes it from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. It was a voluntary, willing negotiation and transaction. Why did Boaz do it? Why was he so willing? He said, well, I can answer that. He loved her. Okay, but why did he love her? What did he see in her? He said, I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know her. Ruth asked the same question. How come you're treating me with such favor back in chapter 2 and chapter 1? Why are you treating me with such favor? What do you see in me? Well, we don't know, but I don't think she pushed it too far. What does God see in you? What does God see in me? Why does God love me? Is there a good reason for God to love me? I don't think so. But I'm not pushing it. I'm not going to say, I don't understand why you love us so much. Hey, forget it. He loves you. Receive it. Accept it. Enjoy it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, the beautiful words, being justified freely by His grace. The word freely means without a cause. Without a reason. So quit trying to come up with reasons for God to love you. Quit trying to show off to God. Look, God, what I did for you. I'll give you a reason for you to love me. God loves you without a cause, freely. And he is willing to redeem. Look over at verse 10. Not only is he qualified, but he's very interested. He is calling his bride, Ruth. It says in verse 10, Moreover, this is Boaz doing the talking, Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through the inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from the position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Boaz redeemed the land, but he wanted the bride. He wanted the woman. The real prize was not the land. He had fields everywhere. He wanted her more than anything. You say, how do you know that? Because the term moreover 
The beginning of verse 10 is a Hebrew word, vagam. And it's a word that lays emphasis on what follows that rather than what precedes it. It's as if he said, and even more than the land, I've acquired a wife. My point is this. Boaz bought the land so that he could get the wife. He was interested in the relationship, not just more wealth. Oh, what a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for the joy of it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, Jesus has just said, the field in his parables is the world. It's a picture of Jesus redeeming the field, the world, to get us the treasure, the bride that is tucked in that field. What a beautiful picture that is. That's why George Beverly Shea of the Billy Graham Association wrote and sings so often that song. Oh, the wonder of it all. Just to think that God loves me. Now, a lot of times we look at other Christians and we think, oh, the wonder of it all, to think that God loves you. Now, turn that around this morning. What a wonder that God loves me. That's how Ruth felt. In chapter 4, there's something else that is also a picture of Jesus Christ as our kinsman redeemer. Boaz is in the gate making the negotiations. Where's Ruth? Ruth isn't there. Ruth made the choice, however. Back in chapter 3, she said, let's get married. You're related to me. Boaz said, I'd like to. If I can pull it off, I'll do it. There's somebody. Let's see if he's willing. If not, I'm willing. You sit tight. And Naomi, at the end of that chapter, says, you sit still. Now we see Boaz with all the elders and this other relative making the negotiations. However, if you remember back in Deuteronomy 25, the woman has to be present. If there is a woman and her husband is dead, let her go to the relative and say, here I am. You've got to marry me. Well, not marry me, but you have to raise up seed to your dead brother. If he refuses, she is the one that spits in his face. She is the one that takes his sandal. She's not present here. Ruth is out of the picture. My point is this. All of the work of redemption is done solely by Boaz. She's not doing anything but trusting, believing, but Boaz is responding to her choice. She came to him and said, I want you as my kinsman redeemer. And now he's doing all the work. God responds to our choice. Jesus has done all the work for you, but you must make a choice. Salvation is not automatic. You don't say, okay, I'll buy a Bible. Boom, all of a sudden I'm a Christian. I'm going to go to a church. Boom, now I'm a Christian. It's not automatic. You have to choose to follow Jesus Christ and make him your kinsman redeemer. Not only that, but this transaction is a public one. There's witnesses, there's elders, and in verse 11, there's the townspeople that have gathered together to witness this event. Just like a wedding. And when they get married, there's people there. Why do you invite people to weddings? So they can eat the cake? No, you invite them so they can witness the deal, the transaction. When people become Christians, it is not a private thing, all right? Well, religion is private like politics. It is not. Jesus said, shout from the housetops. That's what you have heard in secret. It's public. 
And oftentimes people make commitments publicly, just like Ruth and Boaz made this public. You can't be an Inspector Clouseau Christian. You can't be a private eye. I'm a Christian, don't let anybody know. I got my badge. (laughs) But I'm not going to tell anybody, especially at work. Let's not make a big deal out of it. Make a big deal out of it. It's the greatest experience in life, redemption. And it was done publicly. Therein lies the hinge of redemption. Choice. I refer you back to those secular authors, Peter Kim and James Patterson, who said there are no heroes because we have ceased to believe in anything strongly enough to be impressed by its attainment. Maybe the reason Jesus is not your hero is because you don't believe in him. You're not impressed with his attainment. Redemption. Boaz, mighty man of Bethlehem. Ruth was impressed with him. Redemption. Jesus is a man for eternity. Wanting to be your hero. The choice is up to you if you haven't made it already. I want to close with a little paragraph that I found. It's a legend. It's a Jewish legend written about in their writings. When God was about to create man, says this Jewish legend, He took into His counsel the angels that stood about His throne. Create Him not, said the angel of justice. For if you do, He will commit all kinds of wickedness against His fellow men. He will be hard and cruel and dishonest and unrighteous. Create Him not, said the angel of truth. For He will be false, deceitful to His brother, to His fellow man, and even to you. Create him not, said the angel of holiness, for he will follow that which is impure in thy sight and dishonor you to your face. And then stepped forward the messenger of mercy and said, Create him, heavenly Father, for when he sins and turns from the path of right and truth and holiness, then I will take him tenderly by the hand, speak loving words to him, and lead him back to you. That messenger of mercy is Jesus Christ who has done exactly that. That's what redemption means, to bring you back to God when you fall. Ruth estranged, now brought close in the family. You estranged. Jesus is the hero of the human race. But a lot of us don't believe strongly enough in Him to be impressed by His attainment. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, first of all, for those of us who are believers who sometimes even yawn at the greatest truth of all, that God loved the world and gave His Son. I pray, Lord, that we would be humbled and deeply impressed by Jesus Christ, our hero. And that we would rejoice, as the disciples were told to, that their names were written in heaven. Father, I would pray for those who have come this morning who don't know Jesus personally. Oh, they've heard his name tossed around. They've read it in books. They remember it as a kid in church. Oh, he's a figure of history. So many of these people are pessimistic and burned out. They don't know what to believe in. They're wandering and they're aimless. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would redeem them, Lord Jesus. Rescue them. Bring them back to the Father. Be their Goel, their kinsman redeemer. As they make the choice and then you respond to that, finishing the work. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's all stand. We have got a prayer room over here to my right, to your left, up front. Would you come through the doors if you want to pray about anything? You want to meet a pastor or a counselor? If you're not yet a believer...